0: Well, this morning we continue uh, in the third of a series of four in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you wear? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies." At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Well, let's pray and ask God for his help. Our Father, please help us to understand what this part of your word is teaching us. Help us to listen carefully. Help us to put into practice what we learn. Encourage us. Inspire us. Steady us. May we find, as we have sung, the security of being in the shadow of the Lord's wings. We are full, therefore, of expectation, for your word is alive, and your spirit is here. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, and for his sake. Amen. Now, inside the service sheet, you'll see an outline of what I think this chapter is teaching us. Now, God has a plan. God has a salvation plan for humanity and the world. It is a plan that is described in the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation It is a plan that is being worked out, has been, is being, and will be worked out in human history from the moment humanity rejected God as king until the moment the Lord Jesus returns as King of kings and heralds a new creation where all people who have trusted in him or the promise of him will live for all eternity with him. There is in that salvation plan a focal point. The focal point is the cross of Christ, where the Son of God became the servant of God and of humanity and gave his life. And all those who believed in that cross, like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, they believed in the promise of a Savior. And all who have lived since and believe on the basis of the evidence of Jesus Christ, his death His resurrection. The cross of Christ is the focal point of God's salvation plan. But there is a day to come, a glorious day in the future, when the Lord Jesus returns in his majesty and in his splendor, and the world in which we live will be no more, and God will resurrect this earth, a new creation. God has a plan, a salvation plan for humanity and the world. And as you study a little book like Ruth, it's important that we keep that global, all of history sweep in our minds. God has a plan. Now, all who believe in Jesus, all who believed in the promise of a Savior, like Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, all who believe in Jesus, since many of us in this room are caught up personally, in this macro-level, overarching salvation plan for humanity. Caught up personally in the sense that we, for many of us here, are recipients of all the benefits and all the blessings of being reconciled to God as forgiven sinners, being adopted as His children, with the Holy Spirit living in us. So we are caught up as individuals, and it's really important that we see that we're caught up not as churches, we're not caught up as a kind of race of Christians in the world. You're only ever caught up as an individual. Remember, God only has children, no grandchildren. We're caught up as individuals in his plan. We're recipients of the blessings. And of course, uh, one of the questions through the book of Ruth is, are you? Has the salvation plan of God for humanity hit a crossroads with your life? Oftentimes, they, they kind of run parallel, but there needs to be a crossroads. And of course, towering above the crossroads when you do meet God's salvation plan as a cross. Now, countless millions are part of that plan personally, and countless more millions will be. But, and and here's the point I'm trying to get to, as believers, we are caught up in God's salvation plan in another way. And that is, that God uses the active faith of his people. He uses the active faith of his believing people to further his plan, to make it happen in the world, to advance it. So take the book of Ruth this little book, as a snapshot of a particular period in salvation history, a particular period in the progression of God's salvation plan. It was a bleak time for God's people at the start of this little book, at the start of this period in history. Remember how the book begins. Just glance back at the very beginning words. It begins with these words, in the days when the judges ruled. They were bleak days. Amongst God's people, as they disobeyed God and turned away from him, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. That's how the book of Ruth begins, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, look at the very end of the book, one word. The final word in the book of Ruth is David. Now, David is a big name in God's salvation plan. This baby boy would become God's anointed king of Israel, and running down through the centuries, King David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of God's universal and everlasting kingdom. These are the bookends of the book of Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled, the bleakest of days, the last word, David, a promised king. Now, that's a big step forward in God's salvation plan, from in the days the judges ruled to David. How did God's salvation plan take a big step forward? Well, the major key, if you like, of the book of Ruth is that God did it. God is at work in the world, furthering his plan. But there is a minor key in the book of Ruth a minor key in salvation history, and that is that God uses the active faith of his people to advance his purposes in the world. Now, what I cannot do this morning and would love to be able to do is square the circle for us. I cannot explain to you And Scripture doesn't exactly how God's sovereignty meshes with human responsibility. God's sovereignty, God's providence is all over this book. God's sovereignty, God's providence is all over the history of his believing people in the world. So, for example, chapter 2. Now, Ruth just happened to come into that field where Boaz was there who was a redeemer for her. But there is a minor key, that she did what was right, and she just happened to come into this field. Or put the major key first, she just happened to come, but she did what was right. You and I as believing people are not passive participants in God's salvation plan, we will never understand exactly how it fits together. We will never understand the theology. And nor will we see it all clearly as it works out in our families. Just look at the final heading I have put on the service sheet, seeing the big picture. That's kind of a bit too optimistic. Sensing sometimes, occasionally, what God is doing might be better. We're just never going to see it all. We're never going to see it all. God uses the active faith of his people to advance his salvation plan. Now, that should bring one of two things to you. A smile to your faces, or it might pull you up by the bootstraps. If you're not sort of sitting in the shoes of Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, with active faith. Or you might be thinking, I'm just an ordinary... I've written punter here in my notes. I don't usually use words like punter. I don't know where that came from. Ordinary person. (laughs) Who is it that advances God's salvation plan? Is it David? David gets one word in the book of Ruth. Ruth, who is a Moabite, a foreigner, in her early 20s, beginning of the book, her mid 30s, in the middle of the book, a widow, a nothing, a nobody. Naomi, an older woman, a widow, who's bleak. Life has dealt her plenty harsh blows. Boaz, these are the ordinary people that God uses in his salvation plan to advance his purposes in the world. God uses the active faith of ordinary uh, people. So let me just move forward to the last thing I'm going to say in the sermon. I think this is logically right. That had it not been for Naomi's initiative, had it not been for Ruth's obedience, had it not been for Ruth's sacrificial commitment, had it not been for Boaz's integrity and assumption of his God-given responsibility, God would not have in this way advanced his salvation plan and A, blessed his family, B, blessed the nation of Israel with a king, and C, Many generations later, bless the world with a savior. And there is no logical reason why this group here of ordinary people cannot, by their initiative, obedience, sacrifice, integrity, and taking their responsibilities. Seriously, there is no logical reason why you and I, by doing these things, cannot and will not bless the families we are in, bless the nation in which we live, and bless the world. There is no logical reason to suggest that these ordinary people are in some ways more likely to be caught up in the progression of God's salvation plan than us. So that should make you smile or pull up your socks, one or the other. Now, that's the kind of kernel of this chapter. And we've kind of waggled around on the T just to get the big point uh, of the chapter. Dick Lucas, who's a kind of mentor to me as a preacher, uh, used to always teach people you've got to divide it into three and you've got to go through the passage and exegete and expound every verse. But what he always did is broke all of these rules. And he just hit the nails on the head. Now, the nail on the head in this passage is that God uses your active faith. Because you are ordinary, and I'm ordinary. To advance his purposes in the world. And all he wants of you and me, all he wants of you and me, is to live under the shadow of his wing. And to take initiative. to be obedient, to be sacrificial, to show integrity, and to take our responsibilities seriously. And let God do what God will do. And he may one day just open one little corner of your eye, and you will sense how God has used that in the outworking of his salvation plan. And when we're in glory, well, One day in glory, when God resurrects this earth, Naomi will hold not her grandson, as I have said twice wrongly so far in this year, she will hold her great-grandson in her arms, David, whom she probably never saw. So that's the big kind of kernel of this passage. Now, let's look at the illustrations of active faith. Firstly, taking initiative. Uh, verses uh, 1 to 5. Let's just uh, look at that uh, again. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women Uh, you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, all sorts of nonsense is talked about, this kind of stuff. Yep. Now, what I think is going on here is Naomi is taking initiative. Now, active faith, active faith amongst God's people is always in accordance with God's word. The, the only way we can know that our activity for the sake of God is faithful activity is by doing what God's word says. Yep. And at a first reading, this might seem a bit bizarre. But if you've been here with us through our studies in the book, you'd have picked up that that the initiative Naomi is taking here is based on God's Word. Let me just fill that in for you. In Old Testament times, it was vital that a man's uh, family name should be preserved. And if he died without an heir, as Naomi had done, as uh, uh, Ruth had done, both had lost their husbands, steps were taken to make sure that uh, he had an heir that would carry on the family name and inherit the family uh, property. And the law said that if... Uh, The widow of the dead man should marry one of her husband's relatives, and uh, Boaz was one of Naomi and Elimelech, her dead husband's relatives. They should do that, and the firstborn of that marriage would inherit the dead man's family uh, line. And there were other provisions in God's law. If a family uh, lost property because they had fallen in hard times in widowhood, that that somebody like Boaz would redeem it or buy it back. That that was in God's word. And so what Naomi is doing in these verses, she's sending Ruth off uh, to marry Boaz in accordance with these specific provisions in God's word. That's what she's doing. So in one sense, it is a mother-in-law matchmaking. But she is active in her faith in accordance with God's Word. But what about the way she does it? She gets Ruth to make herself look beautiful and go and lie at Boaz's feet in the middle of the night. What do we make of this? It's not a custom in God's Word. This kind of thing is not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. The principle about Boaz becoming her kinsman-redeemer, the principle about Boaz becoming Ruth's husband is in Scripture. But the mandate as to how you go about it is not. Now, something I want to be crystal clear on here, there is not a hint, there is not a sniff, there is not an, an iota of sexual impropriety In anybody's mind here, or on these pages of Scripture, or in these events, that is not there. But what Naomi does is risky. It is direct, it is bold, she sees... The opportunity, this God-given opportunity, the events of chapter 2 have encouraged her that Boaz might well be the redeemer that will give them back security, both her and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she just does it. She grasps the nettle. And there are occasions in our lives as Christians when godly initiative is the order of the day. John Piper preaching... On Ruth chapter 3, he calls this strategic godliness. He calls it godliness with your head screwed on. Godliness that looks at the unfolding circumstances of your life. And with a Bible in your hand, grasps the nettle, takes the initiative, takes the bold step. Let me give you some practical examples of what it might look like for us. So, for example, this is my one relationship example uh, today. Many sermons on Ruth 3 are all about relationships. Not about that. It's about all of life for the Christian. But in the realm of relationships, what does Ruth chapter 3 or uh, this little bit uh, tell us? So imagine a young Christian man a woman who meets someone. There's a spark. And there needs to be a spark. Uh, There is a spark between Boaz and Boaz. And Ruth, there is. Sparks between a man and a woman who meet each other are godly things. But faith leads them to ask the right questions. Is she, is he a Christian? Is marrying him or her going to help my walk with the Lord... Will I love her as Christ loves the church? Will I love him as I love Christ? Can we serve the Lord better together than apart? These are the right questions to ask. But sometimes when we find the answers to these questions are yes, we need to take the initiative, Naomi, and grasp the nettle and just do it. Another example I heard this week of someone on a long flight who got into a conversation with a person sitting next to them. And, of course, you can't escape on a plane, especially if you're going from South America to London, especially if the person you might want to speak to is on the window seat. What do you do? God's Word encourages you to share the gospel with them. But you know that. Imagine yourself sitting in that plane. You just don't have the courage to you. You don't know what they're going to say. Are they going to defeat you? Are they going to demolish you? Or is it going to make the next 12 hours really tense? Rejection is risky. What do you do? You just take the initiative. You go for it. Or some opportunity for Christian service comes across your path, and you sense God's prompting, you sense... God's leading and the circumstances in your life suggest it might well be right, and people around you are saying, yes, you have the gifts, you have the gifts to do it. There are occasions in the Christian life when, like Naomi, you've just got to do it. Take the initiative. Take the risks or within church life, strategy, vision, development, if it is biblically grounded, biblically motivated, if it advances God's kingdom, there are occasions when the right thing to do is to go for it, to strike out, to take the initiative, to be bold. As one writer puts it, Naomi illustrates the logic of active faith. She puts her God-ordained circumstances up against the instructions of God's word, and she grasps the nettle and takes her chance in life. Strategic godliness. What she did was bold, but not foolish. Now, if she shows us the outworking of active faith in terms of godly initiative, Ruth shows us the obedience and sacrificial commitment of active faith. Let's read verses 6 through 9. So she went to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. It's very striking. And all the Bible commentaries, they get all tied in knots over this stuff. And they say, what woke him in the middle of the night? Was it a spider? I mean, Maybe not really relevant, I don't think. I wake about six times in the night for no good reason at all. Maybe it was hot. Where are we? Verse 9. Who are you? And then you have a big excursus in your commentary. What's the significance, theologically, of the question, who are you? I mean, if you woke in the middle of the night when a spider crossed your nose and you saw a woman lying beside you, you might say, who are you? Who are you? A whole sermon on the words, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, one or two details. Verse 7 is not implying that Boaz was drunk. I don't need to kind of rehearse all these arguments with you. This is not some kind of godly, godless environment that God brings good out of. It's not. He, he had just eaten. He had slept. He was lying down. It's not a hint of impropriety here. Both Ruth, Boaz, Naomi are presented as godly people. Not perfect, but godly people. Ruth does exactly as her mother-in-law has told her. Naomi's actions are motivated by God's word, and therefore Ruth's obedience is motivated by God's word. And all the way through this book, you see in Ruth simplicity in her faith. And uh, how would you describe Ruth? She is simple. Simple trust and purity and godliness. So very attractive, isn't it? I came across or remembered this hymn this week when I was sitting in my study. I only recall old hymns now, yeah? Because I'm getting old. Do you remember this? Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. Some of you will know that hymn. In simple trust, in simple trust, like those who heard beside the Syrian sea, wherever that is, In simple trust, like those who heard beside the Syrian sea the gracious calling of the Lord, let us, like them, get up without a word and follow thee. Think of Ruth at that fork in the road on the way back from Moab to Beth. Should she go back with all all the future ahead of her in Moab or should she cling to her mother-in-law and hold on to the one true and living God in simple trust without a word? She followed. When she got to Bethlehem, what did she do? She read God's word and she went into the field to glean. And here in chapter 3, in simple trust, in simple trust, she went into that threshing floor and lay down at the feet of the one that she prayed and her heart would become her kinsman, Redeemer. In the biggest decisions of my life as a minister, and in the biggest decisions of our life as a church, and in the biggest decisions of your life as an individual, you can read every single book out there on how to make a godly decision, whatever the issue is. But in the end of the day, it boils down to these little wristbands that kids have on their arms that have WWJD on them. What would Jesus, do. Simple, 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 pure faith. But there's another principle here. She says to Boaz, spread your wings over me. These echo Boaz's words to Ruth after she had come to him in his field. Let me read them to you from chapter 2 and verse 11. Boaz says to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What does obedient faith look like? It looks like coming under the wings of God and living under the wings of God. In asking Boaz to spread his wings over her and give her the protection of marriage and redemption, That is an expression, just one, of her life lived under the wings of God in simple obedience and faith of his word. She's such a powerful example to us of simple, trusting, dependent faith, living her life in accordance with God's word. And if taking initiative like Naomi is risky, simple obedience is risky too. You can imagine Ruth lying on the threshing floor, her heart beating fast. Maybe it was the sound of her beating heart that woke up Boaz. Simple obedience and sacrificial commitment. Now Ruth gave up everything for the Lord. She left Moab. She waved goodbye to her sister-in-law, Orpah. She clung to Ruth. She was a foreigner, a widow. She followed the living God. And just moving forward a verse, what does Boaz say to Ruth? He says, look, he said, "I'm, I'm touched. I'm touched that you want to marry me and not a younger man. He must have been an older man. Her sacrificial commitment to do that was for the sake of her mother-in-law. For the sake of her mother-in-law's dead husband and his family line. And that day on the threshing floor as Ruth lay down at his feet and asked him, it, as it were, to be her husband, that sacrificial commitment led to the birth of a child and a child and a child who would be king of a nation under the shadow of God's wings. Now, Boaz, verses 10 to 15, well, we've already strayed on to his territory. What does he say? Verse 11, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy uh, woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning. I bet neither of them slept. But she arose before one could recognize another, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out, so she held it out, and he filled it with grain and he sent her home to her mother-in-law. And uh, what Boaz shows us here and throughout this whole book is godly integrity. It is such a powerful mark of active faith. Every time we meet Boaz, the Lord's name is on his lips. Every time we meet Boaz, we see kindness and graciousness, gentleness and goodness. His behavior that night on the threshing floor is impeccable. He protects her, protects her reputation. He provides for her sheer godly integrity. At the beginning of chapter 2, when we're first introduced to Boaz, he is described as a worthy man, a godly man, and now in turn he describes Ruth as a worthy woman, a godly woman. Sheer godly integrity goes a long, long way in advancing God's purposes. Living a godly life, living a holy life. Boaz was not only a man of integrity, he was a man who took his responsibilities seriously. He promises to do what Ruth says, he will marry her, he will redeem her. And again, the principle behind the specific circumstances here, I'd encourage us to prayerfully consider. Are we taking our responsibilities as Christians seriously to our children, to our parents, to our fellow believers, in church, in evangelism? And so Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz all show us different marks of active faith. Initiative, obedience, sacrificial commitment, integrity, and responsibility. And, of course, all of these are seen most powerfully in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ-likeness. Now, there's one little sting in the tail. And this is what uh, encourages me that uh, God's Word is so realistic Verses 16 to 18, patient hope. You just long at the end of chapter 3 for for them to get married and everything to be fine. But Boaz just puts in this kind of sting in the tail. There's another redeemer who's first in line. And so Ruth goes back home. And what does her mother-in-law say She says, wait. Patient hope. Now that's the kind of sting in the tail. Now you will have to wait till next Sunday to find out what happens. Between now and then, you need patient hope. You can read ahead. But what a powerful word that is about how it often is in the Christian life. We try and live and do what is right active faith. But in terms of the fruit that results, how God might use that active faith in his salvation plan, very often the order of the day or month or year or decade or generation or three generations is wait. Wait patiently. As I said before, I've missed out a generation. David was Naomi's uh, Great grandson. And that is patient hope. Yet hope is real and founded and grounded, and therein we find strength to wait patiently. Now, let me close where we began with the big picture of God's salvation uh, plan. God's plan to redeem humanity. How God used the active faith of the ordinary people then. Naomi. And remember, she turned back to God and you might be here thinking, oh, my life in the past is just a mess. Well, so is the persons next to you. And, and God's word always encourages us to come back. She turned back to God and her, her boldness that night, she just struck out. She just did it. She saw a moment when the circumstances of her life intersected with the provisions of God. And she went for it. Her initiative. Some of you have got that kind of mind, strategic minds. Her initiative. Ruth's obedience, her simple faith her godliness, her sacrifice, Boaz's integrity, his responsibilities. Because of their active faith, these simple, ordinary people, God blessed the family, he blessed the nation, he blessed the world. God's salvation plan is not yet done. It will only be done when the Lord Jesus comes again. So God can use your active faith and mine. Now, you don't. You're going to have to convince each other over lunch this is true because you don't believe this, do you? There's no logical reason why this application is wrong. God can use and will use and does use your active faith, your obedience, your godliness, your sacrifice, your ingenuity, your initiative, your boldness to further his salvation plan in the world. What you must not look for, though, is to see the results of what you do, for you may well never see it. Now that will do one of two things today to you. It'll put a smile on your face or it will pull out your socks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the encouragement that it is. We pray, Lord, that as ordinary people, and we sense our ordinariness very much all of the time. We pray that you would use our active faith, living our lives as faithfully as we can in accordance with your word, to further your salvation plan in the world. Give us, Lord, little glimpses of how you use us. Keep us humble, keep us dependent on you. We pray that we would all live safely under the shadow of your wings. Keep us there. Or maybe for someone here, bring us safe into the shadow of your wings for the very first time. For we sense that our lives are intersecting with your salvation plan. And we are being blessed by your goodness and graciousness to us up us so to trust. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.